Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Coming up a month from the October 7th Hamas attacks on Israel. And the conflict shows no signs of abating. We speak to the Dublin man who has lost 28 family members in Gaza. Plus, we debate whether Norma Foley's new policy on smartphones is a welcome development for primary schools or a political smokescreen to conceal wider issues. I don't think it is appropriate that children of primary school age would carry in their pockets content that could be of a sexual nature, of a violent nature, um, or indeed cyberbullying. And, and that's exactly what they're carrying in their pockets. And in the UK, the first King's speech in over 70 years fails to mention a return to power sharing in Northern Ireland. My Lords and members of the House of Commons, it is mindful of a legacy of service and devotion to this country set by my beloved mother, the late Queen, that I deliver this, the first King's speech Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has acknowledged there will be no ceasefire without release of all Israeli hostages in Gaza. Last night, after a series of Israeli airstrikes in southern Gaza, dozens of people have been reported killed in the cities of Khan Yunus, in Rafah and Deir al-Bala. Meanwhile, across the globe, vigils have taken place to mark a month since the Hamas attack on Israel in which 1,400 people lost their lives and earlier crowds gathered at the Dublin embassy. Uh, take a look at this. But moreover, we're here to call for the release of the hostages. Uh, there's still 242 hostages within Hamas. Um, these are women, children, elderly. One of them is Emily, an eight-year-old Irish girl that, by the looks of it, next week is going to celebrate nine in the hands of Hamas. Um, and we're just here to make a stand and to say that we want the, the families home. I don't know where to start. <laughs> They're all safe physically, but when everyone's saying, asking, are they OK? Like, no, no one is OK, because it's a country at war. Well, joining me now to discuss these developments and reflect on the past month is Fine Gael Senator Mary Siri Carney, Labour TD Aona Reardon, Irish-Palestinian Ahmed Alaga, and down the line is Executive Director of the Alliance for Middle East Peace, John Linden. You're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. Ahmed, I want to come to you first, um, because you are watching this from afar, uh, we were talking about this. You're from Green Hills in Dublin. But it's a story that's really close to home because you have family in Gaza. Uh, tell me about your family and, and what's happening to them right now. Well, at the start of the war, you're looking at the first 10 days, there was 28 family members who were killed by Israeli airstrikes. It was three women, 10 kids and 15 men. Mm -hmm. um, so they, they were killed. I have close cousins out there. Um, I'm sure you're aware of Ibrahim Malaga's situation. He's still stranded out in Gaza. 
Um, and he's obviously trying to get back home. Um, but we've had updates today um, in regards to the Israelis not allowing both Brazilian and Irish mm. citizens to return home. We could see um, your cousin Ibrahim, who has been telling us what's happening in Khan Yunus, where your family and your extended family is from, Ahmed, um, the difficulties they have in getting food and uh, you know, fuel and the situation with water over there and trying to keep his family as safe as possible while he tries to leave the region. Um, can Yunus, as a place in southern Gaza, was that always a place that felt very safe for your family? Well, I don't think any part of Gaza is safe. Um, and in the past and prior to this, uh, a, lot, a lot of the focus, of course, now on, on, on Gaza City and on the north. The north and but the, the centre, but, yeah. but the south has now been targeted too. So well, what, does, what does that feel like looking at those images? It's not a surprise because it's indiscriminate targeting and it always has been. I mean, the Israelis themselves said that if you, and they've, they've given, um, I think they've thrown leaflets down from the sky to mm. give notice to Gazans that if they flee to the south that they're safe. But I've seen images, I've seen videos of Israeli airstrikes hitting people in cars trying to get to the south and they seem to have a an enjoyable time of doing it. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's a joke for them really at this point because you can't claim that it's a safe haven when you're still bombing the south of Gaza, can you in this region? And your concern must be growing now for your family there, for Ibrahim, who for is For everyone there? in Gaza. It's not just, like, the thing is, uh, like, and family members would have said this, is like, we're sorry for your loss that you've, but everyone in Gaza is a brother and sister to us, whether they're family or not. I mean, these are, this is 2.3 million people who are, let's call it for what it is, a concentration camp. They've been besieged since 2006. Everything that goes in and outside of Gaza is controlled by Israel. And even at the best of times, when there's no war or conflict, life there is full of hardship. I mean, if you're, if you're born in Gaza, you stay there forever, you can't get out. Um, so... Everyone in Gaza is our brother and sister, regardless of whether they're family members or not. And we, we grieve everyone's loss equally. That's why when you see the images, you see everyone trying to help each other. <clears throat> Excuse me. Like you see the rescue operations and the missions trying to help one another because everyone sees each other as family over there. So we're all in bereavement. Um, um, and we heard as well, you know, just reaction to grief um, on the other side of the border as well. Um, Israeli citizens who were um, speaking today at the vigil um, that took place in Dublin. And of course, there's a vigil in Israel as well. But on the personal toll that it has taken on people, describe for us the toll and how um, it's felt for you being here in recent weeks. Because it's been difficult, hasn't it? You, you've explained kind of... Yeah, you know, going into work and getting Absolutely. on with life yeah. day to day while Absolutely. this is happening. It's, it's quite traumatising because you think to yourself, well, if I feel this way and I'm traumatised mentally and I can't go about my daily life, I can only imagine what the people in Gaza are going through. Now, I, I find myself quite mentally resilient in a lot of ways, um, but I have friends and family who can't sleep, who can't eat, who can't go about their daily life, who can't eat food because they feel guilty because Gazans can't eat food. I feel the same way as well. I try and limit my food because of that, that kind of stuff. Um, I think it comes to a point where you can only see so many images and videos of kids being charred and burnt and blown up in pieces. And all of these things, I think, desensitizes you after a while to the mm -hmm. point where enough is enough. 
And um, personally, myself, I don't. I, tra- I tend to stay away from that sort of stuff and kind of just focus on developments and see if there's any updates in the region that might de-escalate the situation. But I know, obviously, you know, I have I have family and friends who mm. who are very prone to just consistently and constantly check the images and videos over there, and it can be quite graphic. And I try to advise them mm-hmm. to limit it because it can it can mentally damage you for sure. And we will talk about, um, you know, what's happening, Ibrahim, and to other families who are trying to leave at the moment. Um, I want to talk to John Linden now from the Alliance for Middle East Peace, who's joining us on the programme. Uh, John, thanks for being with us tonight. Members of your alliance are Palestinians and Israelis. They're your friends and your colleagues, and they work together. Tell me about what they are saying to you uh, a month into this war at this really difficult time now. I mean, it's just trauma from every direction. And um, some of it obviously very similar to the, the horrors that Ahmed's family uh, are going through. We have uh, staff members who, who who used to live in Gaza and then moved to, to Ramallah, um, but have a lot of family members still in the Gaza Strip who, I mean, it's a sister-in-law who had to give birth in hospitals that don't have any basic provisions over the last week. Um, I spent today on the phone to a member uh, of, of, of one of our member organizations who's trying to evacuate eight of her family members from the Gaza Strip at the moment. They had gone down to the south, to Khan Yunus, but they were there for, for 11 days, living in destitution. And they have gone back to the north, to Gaza City, which is now encircled by by Israeli troops. Um, and every day, there is just new waves of horror. I and, mean, you know, it's, it's been coming on the Israeli side, too. I have a very good friend of mine who was taken hostage, uh, Vivian Silver, who's a lifelong activist and campaigner for peace and an end to occupation, who was who was taken to Gaza on October 7th. So working with her family, another young lady uh, who was uh, a young alumni from an organization in our membership who has also been taken hostage. And they're the, uh, the victims, Palestinian and Israeli. And it's important to note, we've, I mean, you know, more Israeli victims in one day than in the entire five years of the Second Intifada and treble the number of Palestinian victims over the past month than we had again in the five years of the Second Intifada. This is an unprecedented moment for Israelis and for Palestinians. And even those who aren't directly impacted, I mean, the images that Ahmed spoke about, the level of trauma for young people, mental health issues, fear, panic attacks, PTSD, it's um, it's devastating. For peace builders in particular, I mean, everybody is devastated, but for people who are committed to working together for peace and for equality, they also see their societies turning toward dehumanization, going to dark places, which is often very human and natural, and knowing that they're going to be at the forefront of trying to pick up the pieces after this, because we know that fundamentally the only thing that will stop days like these ever coming back again is a real process that, that delivers peace, security, justice, equality, self-determination for both peoples. There is no other solution. Uh, with, with that in mind, John, what do you take from what we heard from Benjamin Netanyahu today? There'll be no ceasefire completely ruling it out, talked about these pauses maybe for an hour or so, Um, no general ceasefire without the release of our hostages. For someone who works towards peace and negotiating sort of ceasefires and truces in this regard, we're not any closer to this happening, uh, do you believe? 
I mean, it's, it's, it's very depressing, right? So we, whilst this is a completely unprecedented situation in its scale and severity, we have seen repeated uh, escalations between Gaza and Israel over the last decade and a half. And there is a rhythm to these things. It's a grisly, horrible rhythm where, you know, there's support initially, then international pressure to, to moderate measures that are taking place, and then finally more overt pressure around a ceasefire. Now, the big difference this time is the hostages, right? There's uh, somewhere in the region of 242 hostages being held in the Gaza Strip. We've sort of been speaking to governments behind the scenes, obviously to families. It is the one thing that could potentially come along now that might disrupt the current dynamic. I mean, first of all, the hostages should be released under international law. It's very clear. I have friends being held hostage. No civilian should be taken hostage. Um, but also, it could provide a de-escalatory moment. In order for those hostages to be released, there would have to be a cessation of violence in order to facilitate the transfer. And that would open up diplomatic space, potentially, for discussions around uh, ways in which we can, we can end this current dynamic and begin to certainly address the humanitarian issues, um, which are really getting toward a point that we have never, ever seen before with regards to the risk of disease, the scarcity of food, of medicines. All of those things could be addressed in the short term during uh, a hostage sort of transfer facilitation. And then maybe diplomatic space could be opened up for another solution. Um, and the other thing really to remember is there will be a ceasefire at some point. Uh, we know that. Uh, it's a question of how many people are going to die between now and then. And then it's also what happens on the other side of a ceasefire. One thing I'm really worried about is the international community is very good at flying to the region and uh, engaging at senior prime ministerial or presidential levels whilst the cameras are on and the, the devastation is so obvious. And then as soon as the ceasefire happens, that attention goes away. And that's been going on now with this conflict being deprioritized really for the last two decades. We, and I mean we very broadly in the international community, need to hold our leaders to account that when that ceasefire comes, the attention does not dilute or dissipate in any way. And we pivot very quickly towards the sort of process that can actually produce a diplomatic solution for Israelis and Palestinians and prevent this ever happening again. All right. Um, I just want to bring the rest of my panel in now. Um, Mary Siri Carney, um, um, listening to that, also what Ahmed had to say and his concerns that he has for, look, all Gazans, all his family. But um, we have heard from his cousin Ibrahim, who's desperate to get out um, of, of Gaza right now, and Khan Yunus, which is, you know, also suffering um, airstrikes. And uh, we heard people before Prophet TD Paul Murphy saying that Israel is refusing to allow Irish citizens leave Gaza in retaliation for the government voting in favour of a UN motion calling for a ceasefire. Uh, do you have any knowledge that this, this could be the case, given that we have not been on any daily lists since the list and the, and the RAFA crossing was open to allow dual passport holders leave? I think the fact that we haven't been on any daily list is uh, an important reason as to why we have to keep in communication uh, with both Egypt and Israeli and, and diplomatic measures have to be stepped up to ensure that those individuals, the, the 40 um, that are people like Ibrahim and his family, um, but also we think of Emily um, and that we need to be ensuring diplomatic uh, relationships are, are, are maintained in order to secure the release of those individuals. When we listen to Ahmed and when we um, think about the, I suppose it, it brings to mind that we hear statistics, you know, we hear 10,000 Palestinians, mm. we hear 242 we hear, uh, hostages, we hear 1,400 killed in one day in the Israeli side. Each one of those are individuals, mm. they're families that are traumatised for life. You know, even if there was a ceasefire tomorrow and this ended tomorrow, 
this is lifelong trauma that is forever going to be the reference, forever change their psychology, forever change what is normal in their lives. But uh, just briefly, just to get back to you on that point and the claim that is being made that Israel is essentially, you know, that, that there's a punishment or a retaliation for Ireland's stance in this conflict and that that's the reason that there are Irish citizens that are trapped in Gaza now who can't leave. What does the, the Irish government say about that? Well, I, I don't speak for the government in that other than that they're going to speak the language of diplomacy naturally in a situation like this. This is important. The Taoiseach has... Uh, call, has been quite frank in that what is happening in Israel mm. uh, looks like and is very much approaching revenge. And, and at one stage, their own prime minister used a, a terminology of mighty vengeance. So uh, there is an element of that and, and perhaps there is a view of us. But uh, now is a time for diplomacy. All right. And the Department uh, of Foreign Affairs has said that fewer than 20% of EU citizens and family members in Gaza had been able to leave. So there's still an awful lot of people um, there who, who, who may want to leave, but certainly can't um, right now. Aon, um, there have been calls for, from Sinn Féin to expel the Israeli uh, ambassador. They sort of changed their mind on that. What's Labour's position on it? Well, we don't believe that the position of the Israeli ambassador is tenable. Um, but we so don't... are you calling for her to be expelled? Well, that's, that's effectively what it means. But we don't want this debate to just come down to the Israeli ambassador. I think what is really troubling is that we're witnessing a genocide, but it's effectively been cheered out by the international community. And I think the international community have to take um, a lot of blame for allowing Israel to feel so emboldened that they can do whatever the hell they like uh, whenever the hell they like, not just in the last month, but over years and years and years and generations. You have a situation where the US will absolutely back them on the EU basis because of legacy issues of the Holocaust. You have the position of Germany and Austria. Mm -hmm. And now you have a scenario where we are witnessing absolute genocide on our TV screens, children uh, being killed, um, um, it's not just, by the way, in Gaza, because the argument about Hamas and, and uh, you know, rooting out Hamas is given as a reason for mm. this, uh, for this aggressive, aggressive action. But in the West Bank, uh, which is not under Hamas control, there are endless examples. And I'll give you this example, sorry, Claire. The world came to a stop when George Floyd in America was killed by a police officer. And we all had a view about how, how that sort of aggressive action you know, was an international incident. That sort of incident happens on a day and daily basis by Israel over Palestinians all the time. Mm. They will shoot dead uh, a, a stone-throwing child with impunity. And until we come to, to, in my own personal opinion, that until we deal with Israel, like we dealt with South Africa in the 70s and 80s, this is going to come back and back and back and back and back again because Israel know they can do what they like. OK, what you're talking about there is... Uh a boycott, uh, I, which, which I, we've, I, I, which we've I, seen I, other parties call for as well, which I presume, uh, to date anyway, the government have, have said they would not be in favour of any such boycott over, well, over Israel. The, well, the difficulty with regards to, to, let's say, trade or anything like that is that, that it, the competencies for that lies at the EU level. Any individual member state of the EU cannot make that determination on their own. Um, so so uh, the best you're not going to get Ireland making do, any such statement? Well, I suppose, I mean, I would laud the actions of, of people like mm. Senator Frances Black and, and her continued advocacy on, on behalf of Palestinians. Um, but we have attempted 
to engage with with her her desire that we cease uh, yeah. any trade with with Israel. But unfortunately, that competency doesn't lie within Ireland because we're a member okay. of the European but, Union. But Claire, in fairness to the Irish government, they have gone further and been stronger than most European countries sure. have. I wonder, uh, but I think the international community has to take stock as what they have allowed Israel to do, not just now, but over, mm. over, over generations. Ahmed, what do you think about all these conversations that are being had um, about, I suppose, the international community caring at times like this mm. or and actually also being very divided at times like this and then looking the other way um, the moment that there is any sort of pause or cessation? Yeah, I think there's been a lot more exposure now and awareness to what's actually going on in that particular part of the region of the world. Um, I think with Israel and what we believe as Palestinians is an apartheid state under antics for the last 75 years at least. What has happened is, I think they've been getting away with it because of the mainstream media siding with them for that long. And Now when you talk about, I suppose, look, what, what, are, what are we doing on this programme tonight? Yeah. Where we are having a discussion yes. which we, you know, which we have done every night since um, October 7th, but which we've also had we've also had panel discussions about this before about what what's happening in the Middle East, talking about what's happening in West Bank. Yeah, um, the media's eyes are on it, but from your point of view, you feel that you're getting more from, say, Arab news networks. Well, it's not just that. What I was the point I was getting at, obviously, me being Middle Eastern background, you, you when you pay attention and you do watch um, Middle Eastern news channels, they are on the ground and they will provide mm-hmm. you with more of the truth per se. Um, so you see, you see the graphic images, you see the graphic uh, videos on the ground. What, what, what the point I was getting at was, I think with the exposure of social media in the last five to 10 years has really pretty much uh, surfaced what the Israelis have been doing for 75 years of apartheid. And with the sharing and the posting of what's actually going on on the ground over there, I think the Israelis now especially the IDF, they've been caught out in their antics and what they've been doing to Palestinians for the last 75 years, um, as mentioned, in the West Bank as well. I mean, the West Bank, since October 7th, you have 167 people being killed, mm-hmm. 2,200 arrested with overnight raids. Uh, have a, Hamas have no influence in the West Bank, so there's been no coverage on that, and I just wanted to mention it tonight because it hasn't been mentioned much. And you, whether... also, have family, you also have family in the West Bank? I have I have family members like yeah. my mum was from the West Bank, but mm-hmm. I mean, um, it's it's not as afflicted as it is in Gaza. It's still bad. Yeah. I mean, people right. people are getting killed over there. So, um, John, uh, just to uh, bring you in on this in Israel, there has been an awful lot of dissatisfaction with 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 the government there prior to this protest at Benjamin Netanyahu and his far right government and protests maybe at what's happening with settlements in the West Bank as well. So ha- has has what's happened in the past month changed that that level of dissatisfaction with Benjamin Netanyahu? Yeah, I mean, the early polls coming out show his approval ratings at the lowest levels in the history of his prime ministership, which is a long history. Um, and I think it's, it goes beyond that. He has framed this, it's called the conceptia in Hebrew, this kind of uh, understanding of the, uh, the prism, the ideological and security-related concept for Israeli um, statecraft, and it's utterly failed. It's failed Israelis, right? I mean, we haven't really talked about this in the same, the same way. Um, uh, and I think 
people are traumatized, they're angry. There's a rally around the flag approach in a war that's not just an Israeli uh, reaction. I think it's typical in a lot of places, but there's real, real anger. Right now, as we speak, there's a camp being set up outside the Knesset uh, by the families of hostages and victims. Um, and they're, they're calling on the government to, um, uh, to sort of be resigned and for there to be elections. And I don't think there will be elections until at some point after a ceasefire. But what I would say, and this is important for us diplomatically and internationally as well, is we're coming into a moment of real transition in both societies. One of the things that we've been frustrated by uh, for, for recent years is just this really static status quo, which is uh, inhumane to Palestinians as occupation continues, insecurity continues for, for Israelis too, and we're not getting anywhere good. Now, I think suddenly we're going to have big political space open up in both societies. And I think it's very important, again, for the diplomatic community to fill that space, that vacuum with a process that is real and serious, not the kind of theater that we've seen in recent years, that is determined, that is willing to hold both parties to account in order to get to a solution to the conflict. Because otherwise, there's some really bad actors with terrible ideas. Some of them are in this current Israeli government who have very, very scary ideas for what they would like to do. Uh, I saw polling yesterday that said that only 74 percent of Israelis no longer believe the conflict can be managed. In a way that that's great because people did think it could be managed for so long, but it's also very dangerous because horrible ideas for how it might be concluded may get more traction than they would otherwise. So we need diplomacy to fill that space instead. All right. John Linden, thank you for joining us on the programme. My thanks also to Ahmed Alaga, who came into studio to join us tonight. Coming up next, we debate Norma Foley's new smartphone policy. Do stay with us. Welcome back. It's not a war on phones. These were the words of Minister for Education Norma Foley as she outlined new guidelines approved by Cabinet that seek to persuade parents to avoid buying smartphones for primary school children. Well, opposition TDs were quick to dismiss the policy, stating that it distracts from wider issues affecting the education sector. Senator Mary Siri Carney and Labour TD Aona Reardon have stayed on with me. And also joining them is Rachel Harper, Principal at St. Patrick's National School in Greystones. Rachel, thanks for joining us on the panel tonight. And you're on because you're in the news today as a result of Norma Foley taking the lead from you and what schools in the Greystones area did with, with their particular initiative on banning smartphones uh, and going more than just banning it in the schools, but actually discouraging parents from giving their kids smartphones in the first place. Why mm -hmm. did you decide to do this? What were you seeing in the classroom that had you worried? Yeah, I suppose it, in my own school, I could see an increase in anxiety levels in, in the children, you know. Um, some of the children, it's to be noted, not all of the children. And also speaking with parents, there was an increase in anxiety levels. You know, parents coming in and saying that children were finding it really difficult to sleep at night or finding it hard to get them into school in the morning. Um, and talking to, to teachers in my school as well, they were saying there was an increase in anxiety levels and just, you know, challenges there for children. So I suppose that caused me to reach out to other principals, the other seven principals in the area, and just to talk to them and see were they seeing something similar. Um, and they were. So we came together as a group of principals and this is where we set up It Takes a Village and it's part of a wider initiative concentrating on children's well-being and promoting that across our eight schools in a joint approach. So the smartphone voluntary code, and I think it's important to mention that it's, it's a voluntary code that we started off in our schools. So there's choice there for, for parents. It's opt-in. Am exactly. I right? So it's a case of, you know, if you want to get on board with this yeah. as parents, you can, but you don't have to. Yeah. But everyone, are you finding that 
really everyone is. Yeah, it's going really well, I think, Claire, because, you know, we sent out a letter from all the eight principals, you know, we sent it out the same week um, and we put together the reasons why we're trying to do this. And I think everybody, all the parents in the area knew we were really mm -hmm. concentrating on the children's well-being and the benefits of waiting until secondary before purchasing a phone for a smartphone for their child. And at the bottom of the email, we got all of the eight principals to sign their signature to it. Do you know, so I think that was very impactful. If you received this email in your own school. Any unhappy think, parents? Know, no, I mean, they haven't been saying it to us, all right. You know, parents have been... I mean, know, are there children that have come into school or had smartphones that you're aware of that your initiative, while, you know, well-meaning, Mm -hmm. hasn't uh, hasn't hit home with them. Have you, have you, no, have you seen that at all? No, and I think it's important to note we never allowed phones in school. So what we're doing in this initiative is we're asking parents not to purchase them at all outside of school. You know, we were seeing things being brought into school content and things like that. Um, so I think parents, there was a sense of relief from parents, you know, it was kind of, you know, a lot of parents were just a bit overwhelmed and they felt under pressure. They didn't come, want to come across as judgmental amongst other parents or they didn't want to come across as an over protective parent. So I think the school's taking the lead on this and, and supporting this initiative and getting the PTAs to roll it out, getting parents to mm -hmm. support and work alongside fellow parents to, to roll this out. And I think for the kids then, there's a sense of yeah. fairness for them also. Yeah, know? and taking the, I suppose, taking the pressure off the parents and giving mm. them the perfect excuse not to get their kids a smartphone. Yeah. Aon, uh, it all sounds like it was very good news day for the Education Minister, Norma Foley, it has to be said. It's surely a good initiative listening to what Rachel has to say about how well well, it's worked in one particular area and now the idea yeah. is to make this nationwide and help our kids in the process. Yeah, fine, and, and fully in support of the initiative and, and, your, school to be to, uh, and your school community are to, are to be congratulated. Um, the issue I have is that effectively, you know, schools have their own smartphone policies. They've been doing this for quite a number of years. Uh, there's been a circular since 2018 about having mm -hmm. a... But it doesn't broaden out beyond well, the community. I mean, parents not, are still under because quite not, a bit of pressure to get... Phones well, it's not kids. in the jurisdiction of the Department of Education uh, to tell parents what to do or what not to do outside of school hours. It's actually a different department. The Department of Children would be the one to imagine would be would be pushing this. But you know, Minister Foley has done what she's done. So, what do you believe done. she stepped out of line on this one? I believe that this. She in her statement today, she says that this is one of the major issues that's that's raised with her when she goes to primary schools, and I don't believe that because the issues that are raised with me, not but notwithstanding, you know, the initiative and the importance of it. We have a crisis in our primary schools when it comes to staff mm -hmm. uh, retention. Uh, we have a gap of about 800 posts across the system. There are schools I visited which have, are operating on a 45% basis and that they can't get teachers. They've, there's 14 posts unfilled, 12 posts unfilled, 10, 9. It doesn't matter where you go. And particularly, it, it's hurting disadvantaged schools. It's hurting uh, children with special educational needs because teachers are being taken from that in order to fill All right, educators. so you believe that this initiative is low priority my, my, as far as... My issue, with this is that, my issue with this is that when it came to this initiative, which has pretty much nothing to do with the Department of Education on that level, the minister is all over it. But when you try to get some intervention on the major crisis, the major crisis which is facing primary schools, you can't get the minister to do anything. And that is what's most disappointing about today's announcement. Mary, what do you think of this? Uh, nice spin, but schools are already doing it to a large extent in banning smartphones and it's outside Norma Foley's remit. I think, first of all, we've got to, we've got to come back to what, what are we doing here? Well, what we're doing here is trying to empower parents 
to not purchase a, a smartphone for their child. Is it a job a for the children's minister rather than the education minister? Well, I'm sure I would like to see the children's minister step in also. But the fact is that cyberbullying is an issue in schools. Um, many of us in the annual general meeting of our, of, of our parents' association, the talk uh, on that night is on cyberbullying and how parents can keep their children safe online um, and the things that parents need to know. And we're always in a catch-up situation of knowing and understanding what our children are exposed to. We, we recognise that a smartphone is an access to the world. It is an influence on children. And so having um, the fact is also that cyberbullying occurs amongst peers in, 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 and people that children know from a school setting. So better to have a policy coming through the school to support parents. The name of the, of the guidelines that came out today are to, a guide for parents and parents' associations to work with their school All community. Right. Well, what, so this what do you is take, and I just want to get back, because we can't kind of ignore that criticism either that we're, we're hearing from the mm -hmm. opposition benches, that we, what we have now is a crisis in our primary schools, 800 teaching posts unfilled, um, according to the INTO and saying that schools they surveyed showed there were additional uh, 1,200 vacancies um, they, they, they estimate they're going to have within the next three months. And that, you know, by making nice smartphone announcements that's going to please a lot of parents around the country, perhaps we're ignoring the big issue in our primary schools, which is massive staff recruitment issue. I, I, I think that the, the two aren't, are, aren't mutually exclusive. First of all, the, the government are not resiling from the fact that and recognising the fact that there is a challenge in, in staffing of our schools. That mm. is very much, it is addressed on, on, three, on three levels. Uh, the first is that there is being a pay deal. There are negotiations going on between government and the public yeah. sector. There was a vote by teachers and there was a, a, an increase in, in pay. Um, the second is looking at, at housing and making sure that there's a, an additional provision of housing. And the government has done, is doing well. Yes, there's more to do, but the government is doing very well on that. But do you believe for teachers this is virus. a priority? Yeah, so, so from a from a, a, a we can address those issues by government, but also address the fact that children need to be kept safe, that childhood needs to be preserved, that children are being exposed to things that are way beyond childhood. And so Rachel's initiative is a is a brilliant one. It's a brilliant example. Mm -hmm. Isn't it good for the Department of Education to take that example right. and provide it and make it available to every school in the country because it opens the conversation and ensures that everybody is on, uh, has an, at least an awareness okay. of the dangers all of right. smartphones. Rachel, I want to bring you in here as being a principal in all yeah. of this. And when Aon says, <laughs> you know, there are bigger issues facing schools, what do you say to that? Yeah, look, there's no doubt there are challenges in school at the moment, but I really feel that with this initiative today, it's a huge success for, for primary schools across the country. Um, I really feel that there's going to be huge benefits by schools rolling this initiative out in, in, their, um, in their schools. But I, I also feel having the support from the government, I think that means a lot in this. You know, the strength mm. in this initiative is everybody working together. Uh, you know, the teachers, the PTAs, the, the parents all working together. And now the next level is the government supporting this. And I believe there's funding coming out, which we will be able to avail of, you know, to help with talks for parents, because it's all about education it's here it, as it's well. It's putting it back on parents though again, isn't it? Do you know what? I think there's a sense of relief from the parents because we've started this conversation. We're supporting them. and. In a way, they can blame the schools, you know, and blame the PTAs. But there's there's that camaraderie amongst parents because we and you don't finding... you don't believe that schools would take issue with this. Um, and maybe Aon, you, no, you were saying think... you were saying when this circular is, is going around to schools that 
principles be insulted by it? Well, so, I mean, some some will, I believe. Uh, some won't. Um, you know, I mean, uh, I know the schools I talk to when they talk about you know the issues that they're facing, and um, they already have. Uh, strong policies in place. Mm. They're already, already dealing with their parents' associations. They have a circle going dating back to 2018 about how to deal with smartphones. Do they not still bullying. face challenges, Absol even though they absolutely. have a, poli a, a policy on banning smartphones? Absolutely, but, but schools, the, the, schools the kids are, have it. Schools are only yeah. in charge of, and I'm a school principal myself, what happens within the school hours uh, on the school campus. But does it not play out in the classroom if a kid, no, if, if kids it, have phones? Sorry, hold on. I, I, in I the abs after hours. Absolutely, it does. And there's a responsibility on schools to lead that, lead, lead that uh, change and to lead that uh, discussion. But they're already doing that. My point is that if, if, if government are really suggesting to us in the opposition or to the, or to the public that this is a, one of the main issues that's being raised with them when they visit the schools, I have to suggest that when you have a situation, I have a five-year-old daughter, I dread the day when she's going to ask for a smartphone. But what I also want her is to go to a school that actually has, is fully staffed and has a situation where in other schools across the city in which I live, that schools are not disproportionately hurt by a staffing issue, which actually disproportionately affects disadvantaged schools, desh schools, desh schools who are crying out for more support, and, and, and schools, as I've mentioned, I witnessed right. and I, I visited, where they have 14 posts unfilled, meaning that only 45% right. of the staffing schedule is actually filled. That is the crisis uh, that we're facing. Smartphone initiatives okay. are very, very welcome, but it's not the number one issue. That some principal, some it, schools will be offended by this, Mary. I, I think that parents are, re, are, are relieved to have it. Parents are delighted. The Irish League of Credit Unions ran a survey this summer and 84% of parents wanted a smartphone ban. This is a voluntary one. This is an opportunity for parents mm. to take responsibility because parents have to say no. Being cynical, I have though, is it a vote-getter? You know, if it's I, great I, for parents, I, for I, teachers, I about, you know, they have their policy and they're problems. worried about other issues day to day. They also now, want I teachers think for we have kids. an obligation to, to show leadership and where issues are identified. We have had children as young as 10 in this country take their own lives because of cyberbullying. This is another it, in mm. another initiative and a leadership from the, from the minister, and she is to be applauded for it. If I had any criticism, mm. I would say we need to go further. We need to actually bring in a legislation that says children 12 and under shouldn't have, have be allowed to have, have smartphones because it is dangerous and we need to recognise that. Professor May, Mary Aiken's book uh, from 2015 of the cyber attack, yeah. uh, cyber effect, talks about that psychological impact yeah, But she's on also children. said, because I heard her talking tonight, saying, you know, the focus in the wrong place with, with banning smartphones, that you really need to look at the content that is on those phones. If they don't have, if they don't have phones, they have iPads, there are other devices and other ways Absolutely. of seeing content that's completely inappropriate, unsuitable. And, that, and that's where the media commissioner comes into play. And I, I reiterated my call again and wrote to the media commissioner again today to you say, want, you want can to, you champion you want this? Declare, can you bring you legislation? Can you make sure that we're I doing When I asked the minister to get trauma-based supports for the most disadvantaged schools in the country, I can't get it. But when it gets, well, hold on, hold on, hold on. But she, but hold on, and, hold on, hold on, hold on. Mental and health support has, hold on, no, this is trauma-based supports for the most disadvantaged schools in the country, a hundred of them. I can't get any traction from her on that, but I can get traction, we can all get traction from her on something that she has no jurisdiction over. And that's what's most frustrating. All right. Uh, well, an employer uh, is held responsible yeah. for what happens outside of the employment right. if there's bullying online. I just want to bring Rachel in here as, as someone who's, who's mm. actually working in mm. the area. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, your view on that, on, I suppose, Norma Foley, like she's an education minister, and, and, and we know that schools are facing, you know, mm. recruitment crisis and other issues and, you know, services that Aon's talking about there. They're under a lot of pressure. Mm -hmm. And do you think this is 
something that she should be really championing when, you know, schools yeah. do have strong policies. You probably had mm -hmm. a very strong policy before mm -hmm. you broadened yeah. out this initiative yourselves. Mm -hmm. And you did it yourselves, actually, yeah, we without did state ourselves. intervention yeah. or, you know, government <laughs> campaigning, if you like. Yeah, and look, there's no doubt there are challenges going on in schools. You know, every principal is, is under pressure. But I suppose bringing it back to the initiative and the children being at the centre, are they going to benefit from this? The children across the country tonight, are they going to benefit from this? Most certainly, are school communities going to benefit from this initiative? Absolutely. Are teachers going to feel more supported in the classrooms with this initiative? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. While we never had phones in our school, you know, children having phones outside of the classroom content was brought in, you know, cyberbullying was brought into the school that teachers had to sort out, principals had okay. to sort out. So definitely there's going to be benefits in the school community. All right. Well, we'll have to see uh, how that is rolled out and where this policy goes from here uh, now that it's left the Cabinet table. We'll leave it there. Lots more after this break, including uh, Britain's King Charles' first state opening of Parliament as monarch. Welcome back. Well, earlier today, the UK had its first King's speech in over 70 years as Charles III officially marked the beginning of uh, what marks the start of Parliament. Before we went on air, I spoke to TRT World presenter Enda Brady. I started by asking him to take us through what all of this entails. So it's traditionally the state opening of Parliament that happens once a year. And really, I think the headlines, it's all about Charles, really, the fact that he's doing it for the first time and his mother is not. So, you know, it's the first time in 70 years that we've seen a king deliver this speech. And effectively, it's setting out what this government, this British government, wants to achieve in the next 12 months in Parliament. So it's Rishi Sunak's first, and in all likelihood it'll be his last, because he's not likely to win the election next year when it comes, Keir Starmer according to the polls, will. So there were 21 separate pieces of legislation. And if you watch this on TV earlier and you thought it's quite dull or it's being delivered in a very bland fashion, that's done deliberately because the monarch is not allowed to inject any passion into it, has to remain neutral so as not to be seen to support any one political party. And yet this is a monarch that's passionate about environmental affairs and he had to deliver a speech that was filled with Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's big promise of a boost for the fossil fuel industry. How did he manage to do that? Well, he delivered it in deadpan tones and remained neutral, but I would imagine privately Charles has a lot to say about this. The problem he has now is that he's no longer Prince of Wales, he's the actual monarch, so he has to keep stump. But, you know, you're right. He is very green, Charles. He is very, very keen on the environment. And Rishi Sunak and his advisors have identified green issues as something where they can kind of draw and drive a chasm between them and Labour in the hope that he will get back some votes. But, like, the gap between the two parties at the moment, Labour are riding high in the polls, consistently hitting upwards of 40%. It's double digits of difference. And in all honesty, Labour, if Starmer just keeps going the way he's going, will win with the kind of result we've not seen here since Tony Blair delivered in May 97. Um, certainly there's been criticism this side of the Irish Sea around the failure to mention the restoring of power sharing in Stormont and what he may have 
put in that speech, you know, to push the DUP towards breaking the deadlock? Look, I think unionists need to read the room. The Conservative Party, its actual name is the Conservative and Unionist Party, they have no interest in Northern Ireland. There are no votes for them in Northern Ireland, so they're not going to put any energy into the North of Ireland. And that's, the, that's just the fact of the matter. So it was all about crime legislation, the justice system, banning cigarettes, extending licences for drilling for oil and gas in the North Sea, but, you know, the kind of things that they think will push home with the electorate in England, the south of England in particular, where they think they can get back some votes. But 21 pieces of legislation, much of which we've already heard, it was fairly dull stuff. Uh, also not mentioned was probably maybe something that hoped for by the Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, um, regarding restrictions on the use of tents for rough sleepers. That certainly caused tensions um, at the top of the Tory party, has it? How is that being uh, met uh, by, you know, the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak? Or is he just happy that she's taking over the headlines? Well, look, she is a human headline. Everything she says, she comes out with these wacky, wacky ideas. Um, she's a strange character, let's be honest. And at the weekend, there was all of this in the newspaper saying that in the King's speech, there would be legislation to ban homeless people from sleeping in tents. And the more intelligent conservative backbenchers, there are still one or two of them left. They really kind of put the heat on this and said, we can't do this. We just can't do this. It'll look terrible. Winter is coming. I mean, where are homeless people meant to sleep if they can't sleep in a tent? So that legislation did not appear today. Um, but Suella Braverman got the headlines. And I think really for her, that's all that matters. But I think when the election comes next year, you know, people like her will really, really be struggling. Mary Siri Carney and Aon O'Reardon have stayed on with me to discuss this further. Uh, Aon, to you on this, do you think there was a, it was a missed opportunity? Uh, we have this 11-minute speech mm. and we have a complete breakdown of power sharing and Stormont and not a mention of it. Well, it's, it's, it's absolutely depressing. I was in Belfast last week, uh, had some meetings with, with people from the SCLP. They are aghast that they are not at the top of the priority list uh, at all. Um, you know, the DUP are, are holding the whole situation to ransom. We need the executive back. We need uh, governments uh, and politics to work mm -hmm. in Northern Ireland, but it's drifting and it's drifting to a very dangerous place. And for 11 minutes, for the king not to make any reference uh, to the North of Ireland is, is, is very disappointing. I mean, it's Rishi Sunak, really, whose speech it is. It's just mm -hmm. that, you know, mm -hmm. uh, Britain's King Charles delivers it um, in this sort of pomp and ceremony at Westminster. So what do you take from what the British government thinks of power sharing and, and restoring that in, in the north? Well, well, it demonstrates that it's not, not at all on their agenda, which is very disturbing. I mean, it's had real life consequences for people in Newry in the last week with the floods there. You know, how, how, are, how is there the response to that? What is a, a, a government mm -hmm. response to that? Um, so I, I think it is shameful and, and, and a, a very sad state of affairs and politics in the UK. You know, I, I'm a great uh, listener to the, the Rest is Politics with Alistair Campbell and Rory Stewart. And they, they talk back yeah. to a time when there, were, when there were good people in the Conservative Party who stood and didn't, mm -hmm. didn't speak terrible tropes like Suella Braverman does all the time. Yeah, um, um, that's the, the headline maker, as uh, Enda Brady was referring to there. And um, there, we'll have to leave it for now. That's all we have time for. My thanks to Mary. 
to Aon and all the rest of our panel tonight, but from all the late team here, good night and do take care. So is my fever. <laughs> Kidding. Mel, I'm so cold but hot. Uh, but I'm gonna get you that budget. Just as soon as... Right. Mikey! Popcorn bowl! Press 1 to use Instacart and get your family's sick day essentials delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. Press 2 to keep working. Do not press 2. Just use Instacart. Brian.